welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome. My name is Linda Bregan, and I'm a senior attorney with the Environmental Law Institute and also a lecturer in law at Vanderbilt University Law School. We are delighted to have with us today our guest, Professor Jim Rossi, to talk about his article, Carbon Taxation by Regulation, which was originally published in the Minnesota Law Review. Professor Rossi is the Associate Dean for Research and the Judge D.L. Lanson Chair in Law at Vanderbilt. He is the author of several books and numerous articles on administrative and energy law published in the country's top law reviews. Also with me today is Elizabeth Holden, a rising third-year law student at Vanderbilt and the editor-in-chief of the Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review. Before we launch into a discussion of Professor Rossi's thought-provoking article, I want to point out that his article was selected this year for inclusion in the Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review, which is a special issue of the Environmental Law Institute's Environmental Law Reporter that will be published this August. The Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review is both a class at Vanderbilt that I co-teach with Professor Michael Vandenberg at Vanderbilt Law School, but it's also a journal. And I'd like to hand it over now to Ms. Holden to briefly tell you about the Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review process and how we picked Professor Rossi's article. Elizabeth? Thanks, Professor Bregan. For our listeners, the Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review, or LPAR, is a joint student publication run by ELI and a select group of students at Vanderbilt Law School. In our annual publication, we identified the year's best legal and policy solutions to pressing environmental issues. LPAR was formed to encourage academics to develop pragmatic, realistic proposals and to bring those ideas to practitioners and policymakers who otherwise might not have the time to review them. LPAR also organizes annual conferences in D.C. and Nashville, where the authors of the selected articles present their research and discuss it with other experts in the field. This year, the members of LPAR discuss roughly 130 of the year's top environmental articles to ultimately select the ones which we believe present the top policy solutions to environmental issues. These articles encompass a wide variety of topics, including state preemption of local initiatives, judicial ethics, and federal energy leasing. Professor Rossi's article was selected for inclusion in our publication because the students were impressed by how thorough, thoughtful, and practical his article was. Professor Rossi's piece moves carbon taxation from a legal academic perspective to a policy one. Well, thank you. That's a a great description of what we do with the LPAR, as we call it. Um, So, Professor Rossi, let's turn to your article, Carbon Taxation by Regulation. Um, In your article, you argue that even though a federal carbon tax remains what you call politically elusive, which I think is correct, uh, carbon taxation as a way to achieve carbon reductions already is occurring in a different way through regulation. So, let's start with the basics first. To begin with, in your article, you talk about what you call carbon lock-in. What is that and why is that a problem? Thank you. Uh, Carbon lock-in refers to the inertia that's created within our energy system due to decades, in some instances more than 50 years, of investment in infrastructure. And that infrastructure remains a drag on the system. It remains a drag on the ability to transition the system to low carbon energy resources. You know, as an example, we build transmission lines in this country and we built transmission lines around 
power generation resources with the assumption that those generation resources were going to be the primary sources of energy as new um, resources come online, as wind energy, solar energy, for example, comes online, that may be geographically distant from the location of that transmission uh, capacity, for example. So it's a drag on the system to have that existing infrastructure, and we have to find a way to transition away from that. Um, And that's a a big obstacle uh, and creates inertia within the system. And so, so that's interesting. And and when you describe carbon lock-in, you also um, then talk about how, in theory at least, a carbon tax is really the most desirable way to address this problem, to address climate change generally. Why is that? What What is so uh, wonderful about a carbon tax from a theoretical perspective anyway? Well, theoretically, a carbon tax is like many other forms of taxation is a mechanism for internalizing the external costs created by various forms of activity. Here, the activity being the production of energy and the carbon costs associated with the production of energy frequently are not priced into the activity itself, given that we don't have any existing comprehensive mechanism for regulating Uh, carbon emissions. So it's that cost internalization feature. If there's a way we can impose that on a system-wide basis onto the production of energy, we have a simple, elegant way of internalizing those costs. And theoretically, that would be a terrific solution, in my opinion. Well, I think, and I think a lot of uh, economists agree with you on that. Um, But, you know, as you talk about in your article, there probably isn't going to be a federal carbon tax anytime soon in this political climate. But you point out in your article that energy regulators already have many tools at their disposal to overcome this carbon lock-in and promote carbon reduction in the energy sector. But you note that these tools are fragmented and decentralized in their application, and there's a real need for regulators to coordinate. Can you tell us some of the ways in which carbon taxation is already occurring through regulation? Sure. This is a big part of what I do descriptively in my article. I try to describe uh, the ways in which energy regulation and rate regulation in particular provide internal subsidies that are being aimed at carbon reduction. And there are many examples of this. In, in some ways, this is a launch off uh, of a, a theme raised many years ago by Richard Posner in an article called Taxation by Regulation, in which he observed that regulation itself, economic regulation, such as regulation of rates for utility, can serve many of the same functions as general taxation. And descriptively, if I look at utility regulation as it's going on in the states, you see features of utility regulation that serve some of the same purposes of a uh, carbon uh, tax. They serve to internalize some of the costs and overcome some of the obstacles associated with carbon lock-in. Some of the examples I talk about in the article include mandates or standards aimed at promoting renewable energy, renewable portfolio standards. These standards are not cost-free And essentially what utility rates allow um, uh, utilities to do is spread the costs associated with transitioning to low carbon resources, much in the way general taxation would allow that kind of cost spread. 
Interesting, and and so then you go in your in, on in your article to discuss um, unleashing internal subsidies for a low carbon future, and and you offer some uh, policy guideposts that could help inform regulators' policy choices in a way that would make the internal subsidies more consistent with the principles for an optimal design of a carbon tax. So tell tell us more about that. Sure. These policy guideposts are really aimed at providing some guidance to states in particular as they think about the use of internal subsidies to pursue low carbon um, energy resources. One thing I point out is that, you know, as you pursue the use of internal subsidies, you should be focused on the extent to which these are actually producing carbon reduction. And you should generally be neutral about whether you're providing them for incumbents or new entrants or neutral across fuel resources apart from the issue of their uh, carbon uh, content. You shouldn't favor one resource over another apart from their carbon uh, carbon, uh, content. You should provide for flexibility in the ways in which these are implemented. In fact, I think some of the reasons we have carbon uh, lock-in is regulation hasn't been is flexible, is adaptive uh, to uh, social, economic, natural resource concerns over the years as it could be. Um, I also talk about how internal subsidies need to take into account public goods, um, such as carbon reduction. And it's very important to uh, be mindful of those things. And it's also important to be concerned about uh, uh, equity and justice issues, fairness issues that arise with the setting of rates um, to provide for internal subsidies. You don't want to have rates set in a way such that um, the poorest customers are bearing the burden of the low carbon transition in the energy sector. Very interesting. Well, in addition to these general um, principles that you offer to help uh, regulators with their policy choices, you also have some very more specific recommendations for ways that states can step up their efforts on internal subsidies in a way to facilitate um, grid decarbonization. What is it that you recommend states do? That's a very good question. Uh, Many states, as I've mentioned in the article, already use internal subsidies through customer rates to provide for or subsidize low carbon transitions uh, in the energy sector. One of the problems though, is that rate regulation, which is the mechanism by which many of these internal subsidies are set, it's not always the most transparent process. And I think that opening up that process in a couple of ways could be beneficial. Uh, For example, uh, it'd be nice if state utility regulators were mindful of the carbon benefits associated with various investments as they approve utility investments in a new transmission line, in a new power generation facility and the like, being mindful of or even attempting to quantify the carbon benefits could be quite helpful. In addition, I think opening up the transparency of the way in which internal subsidies um, are are set, that that could create some uh, benefits for fairness, justice, Uh, and the like, um, being mindful of the implications that subsidies can have across different customer classes, across different demographic groups, uh, that could be brought to light if the process was more transparent. So that's one thing I focus on. Another thing I focus on is that this is, by definition, a second best sort of solution. I think a carbon tax would likely work best 
at the broadest level, such as at a national level, as we move down to the state level with various policies, we're going to have spillover effects that occur. And it's important for states to be mindful of these spillover effects and to attempt to uh, address them. Um, One way of addressing them might be to participate more broadly in regional efforts to address carbon reduction and try to have states then implement that at the, the state and local level. So there are things that states and, and, and regional um, coordination could achieve. But in your article, you also note that even if Congress doesn't take any action to decarbonize the grid, federal agencies such as EPA and Federal Energy Regulatory Commission already have the authority to take steps to better leverage the use of internal subsidies for grid decarbonization. What are some of the steps that federal agencies could take now? Sure, sure. And I think there are some steps, I I think most directly analogous to the internal subsidy phenomenon that I describe in the article, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission plays a similar role at the federal level in the regulation of wholesale electric power and gas markets. And in addressing, for example, the rates associated with transmission lines and their operation in various parts of the country, FERC could take into account some of these very same goals and could play a very substantial role in helping to facilitate a cost-spreading function in the adoption, for example, of new transmission lines to serve uh, renewable energy uh, resources. Um, Similarly, I think FERC can do a better job of taking into account the downstream carbon implications of the infrastructure projects it approves, such as uh, natural gas pipelines. So I think there are opportunities for economic regulators like FERC uh, to play a role here. Uh, as to EPA, uh, this article was initially written and envisioned uh, back in a period when the Clean Power Plan was still alive, and I was mm-hmm. hopeful that some of those um, uh, uh, policy roles could be uh, bolstered uh, by the EPA. But even if the EPA doesn't pursue the Clean Power Plan, I think it can t- continue to play a very substantial role in articulating uh, standards and enforcing standards related to emissions and producing information related to emissions that state regulators can use. Professor Rossi, have you gotten any reaction to your article from state regulators or federal regulators, or did you talk to them during the process of writing this article? Sure, that's a great question. First of all, I think many of the examples that I discuss in the article are examples that I've gathered uh, 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 over many years of talk, talking to state regulators about uh, uh, this role. And yes, I've had some conversations with both state and federal regulators about how uh, their role in setting rates in particular serves a function very similar to taxation. And as a result, it ought to be approached with a mindset similar to what, say, you know, if Congress were to adopt a carbon tax, Congress would want to be considering, right, Um, Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of ensuring the fairness of how the tax um, uh, burden is allocated in terms of how you spread the costs associated with taxation and the like. Professor Rossi, you maintain that it isn't necessary for Congress to adopt a national tax in order for carbon taxation by regulation to move forward. But at the same time, you recognize that legislation could provide a platform for unleashing the potential of internal subsidies. Can you talk a little bit about these so-called modest adjustments that you propose for federal legislation? Sure. And a lot of the modest adjustments I proposed are aimed at making sure that federal regulators have the tools they need 
to help correct for spillover tensions that are created where states are playing a taxation role. So, you know, if you have one state taxing carbon and a neighboring state not doing so, there can be leakage issues and the like. And federal regulators may need to step in and fill the gap, so to speak, so as to correct that leakage uh, problem. So some of the reforms are aimed at giving federal regulators those tools. Other reforms are aimed at producing information about state regulation that can be helpful to state policymakers as they evaluate new initiatives, new reforms, as they evaluate what will produce carbon reduction uh, within the energy sector that they regulate at the state level. Great. Well, thank you. And is there anything else that you that we didn't ask you about your article before I turn it over to Ms. Holden? Any any other things you would like the listeners to know um, about your article and, and what you're trying to communicate and hope will happen as a result of writing it? Thank you. I, I think the article has both a descriptive component and a large part of the article describes what's going on at the state level with internal subsidies. But part of the article is also normative. If we recognize we're not going to have a national carbon tax in the near future, are there things that states should be doing? And um, I, I, I really do think that some reforms, albeit even modest reforms, could make a substantial difference here, given that states are, are moving in this direction, and I believe will continue to move in this direction, especially as we have a lack of uh, 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 any sort of policy solution at the federal level. Mm-hmm. A lot of the balls, the, the, the play now is in the, the, the hands of, of the states and they need the tools, they need the information so that they can move forward and uh, effectively regulate carbon and do so in a, a, a range of different ways, including through utility rates, as I describe in the article. Well, that's encouraging, and um, and really, this article that you've written is exactly what we're looking for through the Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review process, trying to find academics like yourself who are thinking about the hard theoretical issues, but also uh, paying attention to the more practical aspects in terms of how to move the ball forward. So thank you um, for writing the article and uh, talking with us today, and uh, before we close, I want to hand it over over to Ms. Holden to ask you just a more a more general question based on your expertise. Ms. Holden? Thanks. So, Professor Rossi, your article proposes many different steps that states and governments can take to develop a carbon tax, but moving to a broader perspective, where do you think young lawyers should focus their practices if they want to be on the forefront of the energy and environmental field? It's a great question, and, and one I hear often from, from uh, my students. I I think uh, I, I, I would recommend three different things. I mean, as with any young lawyer, I think uh, if you're thinking about entering into the energy or environmental sector, the, the advice I would give any young energy or environmental lawyer is similar to the advice I give any, any student, which is be adaptive and flexible in your careers. This is a rapidly changing uh, uh, sector and, uh, you know, the issues, the solutions, you know, you, you have to be flexible in order to be able to take advantage of uh, new career paths and opportunities. But beyond that, I would highlight two things. One is a lot of the attention that environmental issues receives 
uh, a lot of the attention is focused on the big high stakes environmental disputes that occur at the federal level. And I just want to highlight two things about that. One is often those disputes, if you trace them back, they can be traced back to disputes that are occurring in a particular sector of the economy. And the energy sector in particular is responsible, electricity, for example, is responsible for 40% of carbon emissions. If you include transportation as part of energy, we're talking about 70 to 80% of US carbon emissions. So the energy sector itself is a particularly rich area, and I'd encourage students to be open to considering careers in energy law. Related to that, as I describe in the article, a lot of what's happening here is happening not at the level of Washington, D.C., Congress, EPA, the White House. It's happening in states and being open to looking at state and local governments as vehicles for reform in the environment and energy sectors, I think, is uh, uh, a very important thing. I think there are lots of jobs uh, in this arena. There are lots of career options and career paths uh, in this arena, and that many of them are at the state and local level. And I encourage students to be open to that. Thank you very much. Well, Ms. Holden, thank you for your questions. Professor Rossi, thank you so much for joining us today and for your important scholarship on, on climate policy. Listeners, please make sure to look for the August issue of the Environmental Law Reporter, which contains an abbreviated version of his Carbon Taxation by Regulation article, in addition to other top environmental law articles selected this year. We will be back soon with more podcasts on the Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review. Thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.